Morning, everyone. Welcome to Cup of Joe with uh, Joe Albert and Dr. Rebecca Beck-Burson. And uh, today, our, our topic is really about building um, resilience and confidence in yourself as a leader. It's been a rough few years for all of us. And um, what are some factors that enhance your ability to cope effectively with 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 change, turbulence, and all that. And we have an outstanding and, and guest and in, in, uh, Dr. Andrew Cardi, who I'll introduce in just a second. But um, Beck, welcome. Hi, Joe. It's good to see you for our second last podcast. <laughs> You're like the <laughs> Eagles. It's, this is the, just a, a final tour for the 11th time. That's right. That was a fun surprise. Um, yeah, no, I'm eager to join. And as usual, I like to wear my hat of uh, somebody as a physician psychiatrist who likes working with neurons and narratives and understanding how people change both individually and collectively. So I'm excited to see how that unfolds in our conversation. And I think both of us have, have been through a lot in the last few years even. And um, I think we'll rely more on our personal experience you know, what, what's worked for us, what hasn't, how do you infuse a, a sort of a culture of resilience within an organization or a community? And we're going to touch on all those topics. So our guest today, Dr. Andrew Cardi, uh, administrator um, and, and emergency room physician and uh, outstanding community member um, he's been an ER doctor for over 20 years, and uh, he's also my neighbor, which has been great for a variety of reasons, and uh, he's affiliated with a number of hospitals. And I love hearing his sort of narrative about coping with a very difficult, turbulent environment that he works in and, and oversees now. And um, he's also been instrumental in, in founding a uh, a program for high school students who are interested in medical careers, which I've just gotten to witness and have just been really impressed with. So, uh, Andrew, thanks for joining us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yep. And so uh, today it's it's a focus on resilience and uh, how do we how do we cope with with, you know, the unknown, with change, with stuff you just don't see happening. And, and uh, it's not always easy. And so a bit of today will be stories that you'll hear, uh, but more importantly, we want to give our, our listeners some tools. You know what works, and when your coping skills have kind of run out, and uh, hopefully our, our our sort of theme of resilience will provide for you some some things you can use. Um, I was just doing some background reading on on burnout, even among physicians, uh, which both of you are, of course, and. Um, what it, one article had three in five physicians report at least one manifestation of burnout during the height of Omicron um, between December 9th, 2021, January 2022, nearly 2,500 physicians in the U.S. responded to a survey by researchers from the AMA, AMA and the Mayo Clinic in Stanford. Um, they found that overall 62% of physicians had at least one manifestation of burnout. And I'm guessing beyond uh, medical 
professionals. Burnout is a real issue among folks in leadership roles. So uh, we want to explore that a little bit. But as you know, Andrew, we've talked a little bit about storytelling. That's one of the threads that runs through all our segments and all that. Can you tell us a bit about yourself, a bit about your story, and then we'll get into the yeah. content? Yeah, I'm uh, 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 a child of a uh marriage and family therapist and a CPA started in New York and came out to California in the seventies and went to the local university and then matriculated into med school and um, had to make difficult choices. Anybody who's in a medical career and you get pigeonholed in a certain area, you know, learning about yourself is challenging. So I ended up uh, going into emergency medicine at UC Davis and then got recruited down to mercy to help cheat uh help teach and uh has been have stayed here since have three kids um a loving wife and um raised them they're all out doing their own thing right now and uh spent the last three years um trying to exercise a lot of the um, lessons i had in the first 20 um trying to help our system sort of manage the ups and downs and ebbs and flows of public health and um uh mental health and the challenges it, it, the emergency department's very interesting it's almost like a gauge on your car um it really is sort of the pressure pot you can you have conversations with people and hear their story um and you kind of gauge where they're coming from with their particular element whether it's chest pain or grief or a child who has mental health issues or homeless um or substance abuse or just the the bread and butter things like stroke and, and heart attack and then you can sort of feel sort of the barometer um the air pressure if you will of of your community so it's a really interesting place um for not only the here and now but the future and somewhat the past and um I've taken those lessons and try to codify them to move forward and help our organization deal with that and, and develop resilience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, tell me, what what do you look for in terms of if somebody's effectively coping with, with change turbulence? I mean, are there skills that you see manifest or uh, tools that people seem to have to deal, whether it's a nurse, a physician, whoever it might be? I mean, what do you look for? Well, I mean, I think there's sort of like two pieces to that. There's sort of like the short term and the long term. I mean, I think challenges are challenges. And, you know, you quoted some numbers for emergency medicine, but I think that goes for everybody, whether you're a homemaker, you're a fireman, you're a therapist in your office. I mean, we put a lot of emphasis on on the providers being burned up. But I think, you know, just as as a country, as we become more bipartisan, as there's less dialogue, as you know, I think that that really kind of isolates us into silos. And I think those silos really deteriorate the entire community's ability to cope. Because I think coping really comes from our tribalness and being able to rely on each other for different things. Um, so whether it's a provider, sometimes you need to go a little bit different. I mean, obviously, if somebody gets pushed too far, um, you know they're having some challenges by the way they react, but I, I think it's kind of a part and parcel to a bigger challenge. Yeah. Beck, what are you thinking? Oh, I I first of all love that analogy of the pressure gauge in the emergency department. You know, you have this cross-section of 
all the most intense problems and you're right there in it. Um, but that idea of the divisiveness that tears away at the fabric of resilience within a community, I think is so true. And the tribalness aspect of belonging. Um, I know we've talked about authenticity, we've talked about conflict, we've talked about a lot of great themes, but the theme of belonging and resilience within a community. Um, the other night we had a friend over and fortunately there's been a lot of fallout within the church that he grew up in and a lot of trauma and abuse. And he made the comment, you know, I, I haven't been having very many theological conversations. They've been mostly conversations about belonging. And um, we realized that really was a theological conversation. You know, It's a political conversation. It's a psychological conversation. It's a biological conversation. I mean, it, it really seeps into what motivates us. And I, I'm just curious, Andrew, from your experience, especially with the last couple of years in COVID, were there any experiences or stories that you can recall where either the staff or family of patients, like something happened and it just kind of triggers in your mind, there was a, a moment of belonging, a moment of, and, and how that tied to resilience? Yeah, yeah. So for instance, as Joe alluded to, for the last 15 years, we've um, pulled together some community leaders like the San Diego Alliance for Drug for Youth, Scripps, some other community leaders to try to bring together about 200 high school students every year to try to expose them to healthcare careers, not just physician, but maybe maybe paramedic, maybe pharmacist, maybe nurse, maybe therapist. We've had we have guests every every month. Um, you should be a guest. They'd, they'd love to hear from you. And and these kids do go into those careers, and we've been doing it so long they come back. But in any case, during the height of Delta. Uh, wave, which was probably one of the toughest. Um, these kids got together, unbeknownst to me, and painted, uh, it must be a thousand rocks. And on one side, they would write something. And then on the other side, there'd be like a meaningful uh, a memory or a meaningful. And those were scattered all around the hospital campus. And docs and nurses would pick those up. So we we found, we felt, even though we were oppressed by a virus, we felt a togetherness in the hospital by these kids who had made this token, this symbol for us. And they're still there, you know, um, and um, it's just a beautiful, a beautiful thing where the sort of the community came together. So to me, that's a, a story where, you know, we had sort of paid into the community and then the community kind of paid back to us um, in a sense of meaning. And that was a clear sense of meaning, you know, I mean, what, what do they say? People are brought together by oppression and, and the, the best thing is if it's a, it's a goal. Well, this was a, we had an oppressor in COVID and we had a goal, which was health and we're all doing this together. And that, that was, that was a really a good thing to help pump up and bring together the physicians, nurse, paramedics, administrators, um, that we were there for something that was bigger than us. And so that that's that's kind of a nice thing that I like to reflect on and reflect on often. Um, uh, I wanted to get I, more 
granular, what, what was it about seeing the rocks? Like you personally, when you saw a rock, how did that influence how you felt? And what um, was it, well, it, it gave a sense of purpose to why we were, you know, going and masking up and, and doing all yeah. these things and, and dealing with the uncomfort. Um, and, you know, it made a lot, it, it made being able to kind of weather the storm of, you know, the angst of the community a little bit better too. So, you know, if you took a break and went outside and saw this, and there were other things too, they put some posters up and one of the kids 3D printed some masks for us, which was great. Um, it, it just, uh, uh, a sense of, um, uh, I guess, meaning in the universe, I guess, for, yeah, I don't want to get too. Yeah. Yeah. So I, it was a, it was a, a good vibe as they say. So, yeah. um, I don't know. I'd have a hard time bringing to more than that, but I, I, it was, it was meaningful and they're still there. So. Yeah. No, I, I think that that does touch on, you know, the Victor Frankl quote, we can go through just about any how, if we have a why and it, just yeah. yeah. why it's like, you saw these rocks and it reflected back to you that you were seen. It reflected back to you that you were appreciated, that you belong. Um, I mean, how, how do we, and I, I'd be curious, Joe, your thoughts on this, like how do we cultivate communities of meaning, communities of purpose, communities of belonging? What, yeah. what are the threads of that? Well, and at first I didn't quite get the community thing related to resilience, ironically. And um, I started to think about it, you know, and, and uh, as you both know, a couple of years ago, my wife died and uh, the night she died, um, I just remember uh, my two sons and I were having dinner out in the back patio. We heard noise out in front of the house and we walked out front and there was our entire neighborhood, like 30, 30 people or so uh, with my wife's name and candles and, you know, in the street, but more importantly, a whole semicircle of our neighbors. And I thought, oh. This is community in a neighborhood, you know what I mean? And I just hadn't experienced that before um, in, in that manner in a neighborhood like that. And so the, the idea of and the role of community and helping us cope and, and we've had an earlier segment on loneliness and, um, and, and Beck, you've touched it on a couple of times already today about belonging and being seen, like how critical that is in any community and, and whether it's an organization or a family, a neighborhood, whatever it might be, it just seems like there's some essential components of, of, of a, a resilient culture that we can help foster as we work in our organization, whatever it might be. Does that make sense? I mean, that's kind of how I've been thinking about it. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I, I just try to think about communities that do this well. What are the the variables? What's the soil that allows that to grow? Right. Well, it seems like if if you have the capacity to do it, um, you know, uh, what, what I, I saw this video once of the Dalai Lama and somebody stopped him as as they were walking, it was like a YouTube clip. And, and she said, what do you do when you have intrusive thoughts? And he said, well, usually when you have intrusive thoughts, it's about you, you, you. And he goes, the way to, uh, to, to short circuit those is to contribute. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, you're contributing 
you know, because on the surface, it seems like, you know, a good thing to do. But I think it's the connection is um, not that you're saving up for a rainy day, but when you have the capacity to contribute and you build your community, what you're building is resilience in yourself and so that you and your community can do greater things, whether it's for you and your children or for the environment or for the political base. It's important to contribute when you have the capacity to do so, um, so that we can all benefit and that you personally can maybe even selfishly benefit yeah. at some point in the future. Right. And I and I think that's the notion of, of relationships enhancing our, our ability to be resilient. Um, it, it's just, it's it's sort of churning in my head right now. And I remember when I first started working at the university, um, I had an administrator who I went to talk to him about uh, reimbursement on a trip I had just taken. And he looked at my receipts and he threw them in my face and uh, he goes, get those out of here. You know, I was like, oh, honestly, I thought about just leaving higher ed at that point. I thought this is the way it's going to be. It was like my first year. And within a month, I had spoken with a friend of mine that also works in higher ed. And he said, Joe, you know, when that happened to me once and it did, I just said, you know, finally, I, I may have screwed up, but I don't deserve to be treated like that. And and so I feel like the relationships that we're engaged with, especially those that uh, provide us support, encouragement, almost a path forward, uh, are really critical in terms of our ability to be resilient. I, 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 to some extent, we can be resilient by ourselves, right? Like we find ways to cope mentally, to kind of push ourselves through it and, and so forth. And I'll talk more about that in a few minutes, but I kind of think there's something about the relationships, what they offer us, that we're not alone, that we're seeing, or here's some tools, ideas for coping more effectively. Um, that's why the, I, sometimes, I, at least for me, when I feel overwhelmed, I start to pull away from people. You know, I'm just going to sit home and crash and watch TV or something. When in fact, it's it's engaging with folks that can give us strategies and ideas for coping that could really help us. Does that make sense, kind of? Oh, totally. I mean, it, it reminds me of the term, the wood wide web, you know, the mycorrhizal network underground that connects all the trees and how essential that is to the thriving and health of forests. And I think it's such a good metaphor to what relationship is within a community and how that relates to resilience. And like we do kind of have to overcome that drive to isolate. And I, I see that all the time with my patients. Um, and that Dalai Lama quote about contributing, like contributing is also contributing in relationships. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> well, let me just pause there. What, what are your thoughts? I can see on your faces some thoughts. Oh, I was just reflecting. I think, um, I think uh, this was brought up in that book. Um, you know, there's a few books that sort of change your life. One of them for me was um, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow. Sure. Um, and I think in that book, they bring up that very few of the most recent Nobel Prizes have been won by one person. It's usually a team of people. Mm -hmm. And that's and I think because like you had brought up um, in, in, in a lot of your therapist talks, just that we have blind spots 
and they're blind spots because we're blind to them. And so, you know, contributing in your community, which is as, you know, maybe two dimensional as where your house is, but your community can also be a work community or your online community. If you're, uh, my wife does, my wife does, um, uh, some, a lot of Instagram stuff and, um, has a, a blog that she writes on uh, of stuff that she's really passionate about. Yeah. And I was walking with her, um, at a, at an event and somebody stopped her and said, I just want to let you know that your stories really helped me through a tragedy in my life. Mm-hmm. And she never would have thought that, but, mm-hmm. you know, so I think, you know, when you're passionate about stuff and you can work with people in your community, whether that's, you know, your neighborhood or your work or your social community, um, I think contributing to it allows us to be great and not just good. None of us really want to be, we don't want to be mediocre parents. We don't want to be a mediocre provider. You don't want to be a mediocre computer programmer or artist, or musician. We all want to be great. Um, we all want to leave a mark. It's part of our software, I guess. Um, and I think the only way we can really do that is if we do collaborate with people and um, try to get past our cognitive biases and uh, try to achieve that mission statement for us personally, whatever that might be. Yeah, it reminds me of um, that Frederick Beekner quote, the place God calls you to, which sometimes I translate to my patients, you know, your place of purpose is a place where your deep gladness in the world's deep hunger meet. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and trying to figure out an accessible on-ramp to enter that. Because I, I agree, like none of us want to be average, but I also think it's a paradox. Like we have to be okay with being average so that we get in the game. You know, yeah, if, if we think it's this huge hurdle, like, gosh, I have to have this, you know, life-saving idea or this game-changing plan and, and I got to get a huge tribe of people, then it's like, we're never going to get in the game. Yeah, yeah. You know, as I was walking this morning I saw two of my neighbors and we all congregated <laughs> we went on yeah. a walk together maybe oh yeah it's not simple maybe oh it's, yeah um, Joe, yeah. Joe's seen me I, I play music a lot for fun and for me it's just like pick up basketball um yeah. and and I you know I am more than happy to support the lead singer <laughs> or yeah. or the saxophone player yeah, it, it isn't it, it. Yeah, you're right. It can't always be about personal greatness. It's It's got to be about the whatever goal that you're seeking to to achieve. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree with you on that one. But and it doesn't need to be world changing. You know, if you have a, a continuing medical education program at your at your um, facility or or an educational program at at your therapy office or whatever you have going on it doesn't the the goal doesn't need to be to solve world hunger to increase the iq you know right, right. i mean yeah you know i mean the khan academy started out just because he really wanted his relatives and i believe it was in india to just have access to some better education as far as mathematics and look as how far that's gone that was that's been revolutionary so i mean i i agree i it, i I would t- I should uh, retract greatness and say maybe effectiveness, yeah, because greatness could be could kind of go down the narcissistic pathway. <laughs> and also, I, I think it's it's like you don't have to be the best. And I um, I'm an example of somebody that likes music and plays in a mediocre level, but 
but I enjoy it. I mean, to me, it, it's a balancing thing. It's a whole other side of my brain for sure. But more importantly, you, you do it with people. And secondly, you're always working at it. And that gets me through stuff. I don't know how to explain it. It's just like, yeah, you know, I'm just going to practice today, go through my rudiments and blah, 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 you know, that kind of thing. But it gets me through things. And there's something about that that I, I think I would term uh, resilient factors, if that makes sense at all. You know what totally. I mean? I, I want to take a stab at it, Joe. I don't know if this is going to resonate or fall flat, but music. You guys are both musicians. I'm somewhat of a musician, but it's this practice that brings people together where you're literally on the same sheet of music. You're doing something corporately and how that's connecting into this fabric that holds a community together through resilience. And um, tying together a few thoughts here, but it, it reminds me of, um, I think they're called focal practices and they come from philosopher Albert Borgman. And they're basically just these activities that demand skill, patience, attentiveness. They're worthwhile in and of themselves, not merely what they produce, which I think music can be that. And I mean, you look at historically thousands of years and across cultures, there are these focal practices, dance, um, celebration, mourning, that bring people together. And that idea that we talked about, Andrew, with the Dalai Lama and contributing, um, there's a part of the brain called the default mode network. I don't know if you guys have heard of it or the DMN. A lot of research is coming out, especially with psilocybin and um, different psychedelics, but the default mode network is basically these networks in the brain that when it's turned on, all of our thoughts focus about ourself and our ruminations. That's where the intrusive thoughts live. That's where depression, OCD, addiction, all of these repetitive patterns where our brain has learned a shortcut and believe what the answer is. Huh. Whereas like when we were six and we walked down the street and we would just look at the leaves in our hands and notice all these things and get curious, then um, these practices that bring people together, it's been shown like meditation, prayer, all these things turn the default mode network off. That I, I, I think the mere act of playing music is actually much more profound than we give it credit. Probably, for. yeah. Um, you know, you, you brought up an interesting point back, and maybe I can ask a question to you. So you, um, because you're a specialist in the brain, and it's funny, I, I think of psychiatry and therapy as almost akin, and I think we're going to get there with the development of AI, I think you're going to, I think you guys are going to completely have a Venn diagram that's coming together where you guys are basically software experts. And um, I, you know, I, sometimes I, I look around, my son's a computer scientist and I, um, I look at what he does and the evolution of AI. And I, you know, it's like you're either born with a Mac or a PC or, or something. And then, then you could either have Linux or windows or uh, you know, mac os on that thing and then you just we're trying to figure out how to use this and so you bring up this default mode network mm -hmm. and one of the questions um that i have for you 
because you you said initially a lot of your interest is neurons and I think nature. A narrative. Uh, narrative. Story, um, yeah, story and, and how we change that. So, you know, my body's a temple, you know, your personal wellness and how your personal wellness with regards to resilience and what we can do, because it actually has physiologic functions. You know, do you, do you have any thoughts about that diet, sleep? being the best you so that you can be more resilient um, in crisis situations? Totally. I I mean, I've been putting a lot of thought into this and it relates to burnout. Um, Basically thinking of it as a spectrum that on one end of the spectrum, we can call it whatever we want it. And whether it's disenfranchisement or burnout or sickness, but on the, the center is flourishing you know, the, the place that we're trying to get to. And I do think like physical wellness is definitely a component of it, but I think it's so multifaceted. Um, you know, I, but you know, if the question was more about the, the physical aspect, I do think we disregard a lot of that information from our body. Like we live so in our head, right. But for every one neuron that goes from our brain to our body, there's a, a ratio of about 10 neurons that go from our body to our brain. So we like to think we're a bottom-down creature, but we're totally, or sorry, a, a top-down creature, but we're a, a bottom-up, uh-huh, uh-huh. you know? And so I, I definitely think that's part of that fabric of resilience um, is incorporating the wisdom of the body and um, taking care of our bodies and yeah. you know how we're able to capitalize that culturally so that becomes something that we're encouraging each other to do versus yeah. isolating and destroying our bodies um, yeah. I, yeah I don't know if that hits on your question yeah no it, it totally does I mean it, it I think in, in this day and age there's so much ADDism with you know, terminal scrolling and, you know, all this stuff. And it's like, you, you know, unfortunately you are going to have to change the oil, the air filter, rotate the tires. And, yeah. um, you know, and that, that's, a, that's a realism. And with the spectrum of human abilities, I mean, you have people in their eighties running marathons, most 80 year olds won't be able to run a marathon, but yeah. you probably need to do some minimal amount of like physicalness, dietary changes, in self-investigation to make sure that you're putting the best, you know, given, given the software, the best ability to function and limit those default networks as you were talking about. Yeah, no, I, I mean, again, thinking of these as like cultural shifts, you know, within a, a community, how can these be normative practices? Um, and I know there's been research on like, wealth polarization and health and how those disparities impact our physical well-being. Um, and it, it's a very important point that, yeah, it's like, we need to have relationship, we need to have belonging, we need to have meaning, but we also need the basics. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and you see that every day in the emergency department, I'm sure, you know, poverty and um, all these factors of a community 
you see the the fallout with health. Yeah, and I think that's why we see such a big rise in the in the alternative medicine sphere because I think there's a, a cry for a lot of people looking for functionality and wellness and they know that there's probably something to do with their microbiome or they know that there's something to do with a spirituality and and putting that together and trying to understand that as a legitimacy i i had a joke with joe once i said if you put a bunch of people on a desert island they would develop a religion and beatles music <laughs> and I think that's just inherent in the microprocessor yeah. that we were born with, you know. Um, totally. I mean, those know. practices, they show up, you know, every millennia, you still see them. Yeah. So and we're all striving for it. Uh, Let me throw this in. I'm, I'm curious. One of the issues that at least I've noticed with people coping and being resilient in the face of, of setback, tragedy, difficulty, whatever it might be, is the ability to adapt and to change our patterns. So they're more adaptive. And and there's some point, I think, in, in most all our lives where certain patterns that have been in place since we were little really don't serve us any longer. And, you know, and coping could be one of those for sure. I'm reading a book by uh, James Hollis, just one of my favorite writers. And he shares in, in one of his chapters, it's about developing wisdom in the second half of life. And he said, you know, we grow up, you know, as when we're little, learning how to survive. And we survive not always by being ourselves. We read the rules. We read what's acceptable, what's not. Even though it's not self-expressive, it, it, it keeps us going. It gives us protection by our elders or love or whatever it might be. And so, so we, we sort of follow along those pathways because they kind of work, you know. But then there's a point in your life where you're free to choose, where you're no longer the little kid in the room, but actually the, the adult, the giant, you know, in the room and stuff. And uh, at that point, uh, are you able to say to these patterns and pathways, you know, these no longer serve me. I, I really think this would be a healthier way for me to move forward. And I remember reading it and I was just like, holy crap, I'm on that threshold of, of, I can choose now how I want to be and what I want to be. And I think just for all of us to acknowledge that these pathways and patterns are no longer service, you know, and, and how do we begin to put those aside, acknowledge them in terms of how they served us, but no longer do, and then begin to develop more adaptive patterns. Maybe it's being more social. Maybe it's being kinder. Maybe, I don't know, more gentle with yourself even. You know what I mean? So I think that's part of resilience is the ability to learn new, um, I think, strategies, new ways of, of being with people. Because uh, that alone could, could sort of help us survive, I think. Does that make sense? Oh, totally. Richard Rohr talks about releasing the loyal soldier. You know, the ceremony in Japan that when these kamikaze warriors would come back into the community, they would basically all circle around them. And, you know, some of these people had been fighting guerrilla warfare for, you know, long after the war was over. And they would circle around them and say, thank you for being a loyal soldier. We now want you to be part of the community. And you know, those, those practices, those patterns that we get into, it's like releasing the loyal soldier saying, thank you, you've got me this far, but I, 
you can put your weapons down. You, you no longer need that. We want you to be part of the community. Um, and, and I feel like that's what it is to change. Like there, you can't just say, I need to change. That you almost have to go through this demarcation, this ceremonial transition of like, okay, there was a purpose for that at some point, but I, I have outgrown that mm -hmm. and it no longer is necessary. But I, I think that can be such a, a hard transition for so many people um, that you do need community to help foster that change. Yeah. Yeah, and I sense you're right in the middle of that with your patients. I mean, there's so many people that probably need to change or want to change and, and find it's almost like you're going against your own wiring because it feels like that. Like this has always been natural for me to do it this way or that way, whatever it is. And now I'm realizing that that's part of the problem for me, you know, is I've always done it this way. And it no longer is what I, you know, that saying, you don't tear a wall down to, you know, I was built, you know, like understand that, acknowledge it, honor it. I love that Richard Rohr thing. That's cool. Um, you know, acknowledging how something has served us, but also be able to let go of it so you can move forward to it. It's frightening because you're moving into the unknown in a way, but acknowledging its value previously and then knowing that, you know, for yourself, at least a different pathway or set of patterns has to sort of be engaged. Yeah, I like that. That's cool. Is there at both of you guys as, a, you know, delving in the sphere of mental health? Um, one of the things it seems like this podcast is doing is sort of helping a lot of people just sort of be resilient in everyday stuff. So just very applicable, not getting too esoteric. Um, you know, what are some things that, you know, I could do as a listener to try to help me break out of patterns, like you say, mm -hmm. but having said that, and I know very little about this, I do wonder about the lens of which we have behaviors that have served us well, that are rooted in attachment theory. So you talked mm -hmm. about, you know, whether you're separation sensitive or whether you are, you know, if, if you've always been told you were great and so you have to be over the top otherwise it's not going to be successful or if you're the type of person like I don't want you to know anything about me because that's going to make me feel controlled identifying that and being mindful about that so stepping outside your software looking at your software mm -hmm. saying I trust this theory and next time I go to interact with a group even though I don't want to it's because I want to contribute make a better community feel better about myself be more resilient I have to understand that there is a lens and of one of those three things over mm -hmm. that. Is that a useful thing for the everyday person who's not a therapist or a psychiatrist to say, I need to sort of understand my software so that when I enter this group, I can contribute, I can be more resilient, I can feel better about myself, I can avoid this default network because this lens that I have developed all my life has guided a lot of this to stuff, which has maybe left me isolationist. Wow, great question. Big question, sorry, but I figure you two are probably the best people to ask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Beck, do you want to go first? <laughs> <laughs> I uh, can go. I don't are, we, are we putting our hand on our nose? Not it. Uh, <laughs> no, I think it's an absolutely relevant question, an important question, and is at the heart of conversations I have all day long with my patients. And short answer is yes, it's necessary. 
I think the deeper question is how, you know, especially people aren't in therapy or don't have, you know, the, the resources to try to understand their personality makeup. Um, you know, for years, my husband and I made fun of the Enneagram because we just thought it was this made up cult that you know, tried to classify personality and it wasn't scientifically validated. And then one weekend we learned about it and we were like, oh my gosh, between our 12 years of education. Yeah. Sixth sense moment. I see dead people. Yes. Yeah. But I mean, just having some framework to grab onto, if it pushes you along in understanding yourself better and then understanding how you relate to people, you know, like Joe was saying at the very beginning, relationships are this stitching that connect us to our community and how that stitching enforces the resilience. And so if there, if there's stuff getting in the way of that, we need to know what it is. And, um, I guess just finding a tool that challenges you to self-reflect. If it's therapy, awesome. Um, But therapy is so vulnerable though. You know, therapy is so vulnerable. Like it would be so nice if, if, if there was a way to seek this privately and my IP (laughs) address wasn't being scanned and I wasn't going to start seeing stuff on my Amazon. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this is a very, this is the most private, sensitive thing. It's our software, you know, and it's like, that's us. Right, and those blind spots we can't see. And I I guess that's sort of the, again, the paradox or the the crux of the problem is the thing we need to help us see those blind spots is relationships. But that is what sometimes is jeopardized when we can't see those blind spots. Yeah, it would be great if we could all go to therapy like a Browns fan with the bag over our head. (laughs) (laughs) And then everybody could leave great. (laughs) Right? It's like if you buy alcohol and they have to put it in a brown bag. It's yes, yes. A brown bag for your, yeah. Yeah. I mean, in in a lot of ways, that's what the virtual space has helped facilitate. Yeah. There is, there is a little bit more privacy in that. Um, But yeah, I guess it's like how to, how to make again, that on-ramp accessible. Um, And I guess just normalizing, like, yes, we can all assume that all of us have makeup, whether that's, you know, attachment or personality or pathology, whatever we want to label it, that will create subterfuge. It will create static in trying to connect with the life source of relationships. If we could just normalize that, it's not yeah. because we need to have shame about it or we've done something wrong. It's just part of being human. It's part of this human experience. I, I think that also brings down the divides. It brings down those things that we build up walls against. What do you think, Joe? Yeah, and I think anything that increases your ability to, to kind of get outside yourself and see yourself. Mm-hmm. That that view to me is such a, a transformative experience. I remember the first time I did transcendental meditation. I think I was twenty, and I'm like, "Oh crap!" I mean, I, this is amazing. I can sort of look at myself, and you know, and it's like, "Wow!" I can start to analyze myself, you know. And and then since then, obviously, therapy and eight million other things. 
I, I for me at least, you know, knowing your story a little bit, mm-hmm. it, it's kind of beginning to to examine your own life and discern and reflect on it. That's so critical. But I think anything that encourages, whether it's an Enneagram or whatever, um, it's like, yeah, I'm just, I'm realizing now that there's I have a lot of blind spots, and people don't see that, you know, and until events happen, and sometimes. Now, even severe events, midlife crises, aren't enough to to kind of cause somebody to go, well, wait a second, I always assumed this was true about me or whatever. Now I'm realizing I, I need to do some work here. And that's okay. That's part of the struggle to me of living is, is engaging with those blind spots, engaging with your own awareness of, of who you are and who you're not. I'd love to think I'm this great guy and doing all this stuff. But then you get feedback like, all right, okay, maybe not, you know, not always. And so that's a good learning thing. I hate learning like that, but it's true. And you're right, Beck. I I think we learn through our relationships. That's why they're so critical. You know, we don't, I think, learn just by ourselves. I think it's in the encounter with, with others that we most, I think, produce this sort of self-knowledge. So uh, I think that's a great question. So thank you. And I'm sensitive to time. We just have a few minutes left. So um, before we do that, I'll I'll just invite both of you some closing thoughts and perspective on where the conversation went. Well, for me, I think when you guys talk about story, there's a lot to unpack there. And when I heard um, you talk about story, it's taken me, how long have I known you now? Three years, four years? It's taken me four years to really understand what that word really means. When I first met you, I thought it was once upon a time. But now I realize it's a lot more about the building blocks of who we are as human beings. And then when you get a group of human beings, there's a collective story or a culture and that's how we do things here. So how do we do things in our neighborhood? We just help each other, Joe. And I'm sure you and Beck help each other as well. And I think trying to understand ourselves and maintain those relationships, they take a lifetime to develop and they can be broken in a minute. So anything you can do to maintain the relationship is worthwhile um, for not only for selfish reasons, but for reasons of just personal growth and growth of your group. So, I mean, I, I I love this podcast and I hope you guys do more of it because it's one of those things where like I can see there's value in it. It's just hard for me to describe. <laughs> it's like everything else in mental health. But boy, you know, in, you know, in, in the world where we have com- competition for resources and worried about the longevity of the race and equality and justice and fairness, I think the only way we're going to be do that is a community and a collection of communities and hierarchies, which starts at an understanding of ourselves, understanding our neighbors, understanding of our professional community and our world community. Hmm. And I hope you guys continue this conversation about, quote, story, which Hmm. is a lot to unpack. Thanks. Thank you. And thanks for joining us today. It's been a really engaging conversation. Yeah, I guess two thoughts, I'll try to wrap them up, but um, one is easy, just this idea of scarcity. You know, if if we feel like we're in a situation where there's scarcity, I think that really jeopardizes connection. It really jeopardizes relationship and all the fabric we've been talking about. Um, And to just be able to self-stabilize 
so that there is that connection, that competition is less relevant. Um, and then uh, in a way, these are big thoughts, but we talked about all of them that I just kind of wanted to mention it as a summary. Um, I've put together this four dimensions of flourishing and you know, there's like body, heart, mind, soul, different ways to conceptualize all the different aspects that you wanna individually and collectively keep healthy. But just to summarize them, cause they, they actually echo a lot of the conversation. The first one is values, which helps us derive meaning. This is the why. And I think as we do that individually, it aligns us with the people that we wanna connect with, who's got a, who have a shared vision. The next one is called knowledge. And that leads us to wisdom. This is the operating system, all the ways we assimilate information and make sense of things. So if values is why, knowledge is how. So we have to have that dimension working. The next one is the relational dimension, which of course we've talked about. All of these relationships, both with ourself, right? That self-awareness and our relationships with other people. They, they're two sides of the same coin. And then lastly is the action dimension or the physical dimension. This is what do I do, right? I can have my compass on the right direction. I can have all the knowledge with the map. I can have the relationships anchor me, but do I have wind in my sails? Am I actually doing something? And that's where I just wanna encourage all our listeners to figure out what is, what is the path of least resistance? What is the barrier of entry that you can access and just do it. Maybe it's joining two people on a walk <laughs> the morning you know that you, you didn't anticipate. Maybe it's going to your local library and reading books to kids, I don't know, but just something that's going to cultivate those relationships. So um, yeah, I thought that was neat how organically the conversation actually hit all of those buckets. That's cool. Yeah, thank you. Thank you both. Um, I'm going to close with this. I, I, it, this isn't easy at doing these, making these changes in our lives. I mean, I wish I could say it is, but I'm, as most of you know, that know me, I'm a big believer in the gifts of struggle and, and uh, just leaning into hardship sometimes um, and hanging in there with it to the end. And to me, there's something about that 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 offers us gifts and and even the the opportunity for for personal transformation. So um, I'll just end with this reflection and for what it's worth. And um, and I think about struggle. I often think about one of my favorite baseball movies, um, A League of Their Own, with uh, uh, remember Tom Hanks and Gina Davis and so forth. But there's a scene where Dottie Henson decides to leave the team. Uh, this all-women's team to go back to Oregon to be with her husband. And the coach, who is Tom Hanks, Jimmy Dugan, Dottie, if you want to go back to Oregon and make 100 babies, great. I'm in no position to tell you how to live your life. But sneaking out like this, quitting, you'll regret it for the rest of your life. Baseball is what gets inside you. It's what lights you up. You can't deny that. Dottie, just got too hard. And Jimmy, well, it's supposed to be hard. If it wasn't hard, everyone would do it. The hard is what makes it great, actually. Um, some years ago, I've, I began to do triathlons and, and uh, 
eventually from the sprints up to the, the longer distances. And um, I remember when I did my first 70.3, I was, I found myself completing the 56 mile bike. What was I thinking? And about to begin a 13 mile run, really, what was I thinking? Um, about halfway through the run, a woman named Mary, younger than me, by the way, uh, who was also attempting to complete this race, came up from behind and asked if she could run with me. And then a number of times as we struggled forward, she shared that she was kind of contemplating quitting. Uh, we were we were in the back, way in the back, and during the in the race, the finish signs had already been taken down. Water stations were gone, uh, and the rest of the rewards associated with finishing had already been removed. I shared with her my own desire to be done with this race, how the thought of quitting had crossed my mind, but also that rewards associated with not quitting in the midst of struggle were significant. Well, Mary and I eventually finished the race. The finish signs were gone. Uh, the post-race food had all been consumed and no one announced our names, no one cheering at the finish line, except a number of coworkers of mine, some friends and family members cheering, calling my name, and I felt blessed. Um, a few days later, about a week later, my wife was... Um, and I were in the car driving and we were going up to the hospital in Spokane, where I lived at the time for surgery. And as we drove, Springsteen's Dream Baby Dream, great song, by the way, uh, was playing in the car. And I was thinking beyond the surgery to the months ahead. My doctor told me that six months to a year were normal recovery for this type of cancer. And if they were able to get it all with the surgery, that'd be great. But cancer, shit. Suddenly I felt old. I remember hearing that. Sitting in my office, who to tell first after my wife and kids, I thought the historical figures have become like companions for me. Ernest Shackleton, whose endurance expedition is quite renowned and stuff. Abraham Lincoln, whose depression spurred him on through his presidency and really gave him the tools to succeed. And so I decided that my experience with this disease that affected numerous family members, my own and friends, would serve as a means of demonstrating who I am. Never the fastest or the smartest, um, never first, but someone who can endure. Um, I was getting, I was going to strive to not be a victim, but to endure and somehow become larger in the process. I was reminded of a writer of mine, one of my favorites, Sister Joan Chittister, who explores the connection between struggle and hope. She says the same night she's talking about one of the Old Testament story of Jacob as he wrestled with the angel. And there was one who wrestled with him until daybreak, who, seeing that he could not master him, struck him in the, the uh, socket of his hip, and Jacob's hip was dislocated as he wrestled with him. He said, let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob answered, I can't let you go unless you bless me. He then said, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. He said, then your name shall now be Israel, because you have struggled with God. Um Chittister, Joan Chittister says, if we give up in the midst of struggle, we never find out what struggle would have given us in the end. If we decide to endure it to the end, we come out of it changed by the doing. I've come to understand that it is not struggle that defeats us. It's our failure to struggle that depletes the human spirit. We not only can survive struggle, but it seems, it seems we are meant to survive in new ways, with new thoughts, with new heart. The great secret of life is how to survive struggle without succumbing to it, how to bear struggle without being defeated by it, and how to come out of struggle better than when we found ourselves in the midst of it, trying to survive, trying to go on. 
Why? Because going on is what life is all about. There is no other choice. The only question is whether we go on in the fullness of ourselves or live wounded for the rest of our lives. One way is defeat. The other is hope. The essence of struggle is the decision to become new rather than simply to become older. It is the opportunity to grow either smaller or larger in the process. And so I, I guess I want to end with that. And um, I guess all of you, I wish the very best in terms of your own struggles, uh, in terms of your own ability to cope uh, with all the setbacks that we all experience and the transitions in our lives. But hopefully through our conversation today, and again, thank you so much, Andrew, and thank you, Beck, as always. And uh, hopefully from this, you've developed some tools for uh, improving your own struggle and your own effectiveness at becoming more resilient. So with that, thank you. Best wishes to all, and uh, hopefully we'll see you soon. Thanks.